0: Okay, so I thought it was time to dig one episode out of the Pelvic Health Podcast Archive. If you are working with patients that have pain or if you have pain yourself, hopefully you will have heard of Professor Peter O'Sullivan. He's a professor of musculoskeletal physiotherapy at Curtin University in Western Australia and a specialist musculoskeletal physiotherapist where he still practices out of body logic physiotherapy. The episode today is composed of the best pieces of information that Peter O'Sullivan had recorded with myself and a previous co-host about two years ago. In this episode, Professor O'Sullivan discusses concepts around persistent pain, the relationship with pelvic girdle pain, and most importantly, how our views as professionals may feed into our biases in assessing and treating patients with pain. Now, little has changed in the last two years, however, I'm still amazed that these concepts are not universally accepted or acknowledged, and therefore I felt like we needed to have these out. so I hope you enjoy listening to him.
1: Like a lot of physiotherapists, you know well, most physiotherapists, I suppose, we we were trained in a very biomechanical structural understanding of pain and dysfunction. Um, and uh, that kind of formed the explanation around our understanding of pain, how we communicated pain to people and um, and and also influenced the kind of advice that we give people, the treatments that we give them. and so, you know, if you're thinking around the pelvis, a lot of these um, beliefs around muscle imbalances, um, ligament laxity, instability, um, uh, dysfunctions, you know, all this kind of language that is just so embedded around pelvic pain, um, were part of the belief system that I had 20 odd years ago, probably. And, um, And the languaging around it, which can create a lot of fear, and I think, um, you know, part of my journey was just realizing that a lot of the stuff that I believed in had no evidence base for it actually, um, had a great potential to do harm, um, to increase fear and lack of confidence in people and people in their body. And, um, it was a very poor explanation for their pain experience, um, and tended to drive a lot of disability behaviors and pain, vigilance and pain, anxiety. So that's a lot of what I see in clinical practice is people who come in with a long story of pain who, um, who are actually trapped in this vicious cycle of pain, anxiety, um, pain interference and disability that just buggers their life up. So I was part of that process, unfortunately, and I've been very fortunate to have moved well beyond it. Um, and now probably a, a very strong advocate to change that. Um, and I confront that probably every day. Well, I confront that every day that I work with patients. I hear their story, and I just hear the unraveling process of of how those beliefs are just so incredibly harmful. Um, and we have to stop it. So, so part of my shift, I suppose, is a complete change in understanding of what's driving pain, um, and and leading to that is a change in practice. So that's where the whole approach we've really we've been part of um of understanding like what we call a cognitive functional approach which is understanding you know fundamentally understanding what does pain mean and then shifting behaviors around pain to get people back to doing the stuff in life that are important to them so that's why we call it a cognitive functional therapy approach biopsychosocial is a bit of a catchphrase and it's a bit limiting and um, you know pain is biology um, but pain also influences how you think about it um, how you respond to it Um, and so your social environment and your psychological responses and your beliefs around pain influence your biology so from that perspective it is biopsychosocial Um, but understanding pain from that perspective is one thing, how you take someone on a journey to change it is something else. And I think, you know, we, we have a growing understanding. I said, well, not all people do. So some people are absolutely adherent and stuck to their old belief system. I think some, there's a bit of a dissonance out there at the moment where some people go, yeah, yeah, we understand the biopsychosocial model. That's all cool, but let's just fix up this pelvis, and for God's sake, be careful when you go for a walk, because you might upset that instability. So it's like we're playing two games, playing lip service to one thing, and we're heavily embedded in something else. And And I see that all the time, um, where I think what it reflects is our underlying implicit fear of pain, that we... Fundamentally, as human beings are encultured with a view that pain equals damage, that something's wrong with your structure, that you'll find it on a scan. Uh, And if you don't find it on a scan, then we use these little tests that find asymmetries and dysfunctions that tell you that there's something fundamentally wrong and vulnerable in your body. And that leads down this path of, um, you, know, you know, avoidance, fear, hyperpain, hypervigilance, which we reinforce all the time in practice by telling people they're, you know, these bits are not in place and these muscles aren't quite firing right. And it fundamentally strips people of their self-efficacy. So, of course, this is embedded in a biopsychosocial understanding, but understanding the factors and what you do about them and how you take people on a journey are such a different thing. And I think there's a lot of uncertainty about what how you take people on that journey, and we know it from the outcome studies that are really, you know, you, I just did one of um, one of our PhD students has done a review of looking at um, uh, interventions for pain, uh, for back pain, or oh, no, for any musculoskeletal pain, and. You know, you could compare CBT or ACT or mindfulness or exercise therapy or exposure therapy, and they all look like they have similar effects. Um, and I suppose part of our interest is saying, are we really, what are, what are the factors that are we targeting? How do we best take someone on that journey? And that's a really complex interplay between the therapist and the patient and the therapist's beliefs and their expectations, the patient's beliefs and their expectations. Expectations and their life and their situation—it's complicated. What are the important factors around pain? So the things that we have thought are important, like structure, dysfunction, imbalances, posture—you know—all the stuff that we've been told that we teach people are important—are very poor predictors of people's pain. The things that look like are really important is the perception of threat. So basic things like your perception of threat, and that's influenced by your cultural background, your fundamental beliefs, your social situation, um, your lifestyle factors, how much sleep you're getting, you know, your levels of anxiety, worry, mood, um, you know, interaction with your environment, physical loading—all of those factors kind of set up a risk profile that may mean you do get pain or you don't. How you respond to that pain really comes back to that understanding you have of what does pain mean? And that's our our, our job really comes in there is because we have a really big influence around how what pain means. So understanding what those factors look like, scanning for them, screening for them, and then saying, okay, these are the things that are dominant for that individual. How do we take them on a journey? One, to de-threaten their pain, give them an understanding of it, give them Pain control strategies to get back to the things they love. That's kind of the process that we see in the journey. Too often we're doing workshops on techniques of tricks, and you know, you have a physio with a, oh, you've got a stiff neck and you can do a technique on it. They're not, that is not what we see in clinical practice. You know, they're, they're not care seeking people, they're not people who are frightened to move, who are disabled. The health system is littered with people who have failed physiotherapy, who are stuck in pain clinics, and you know, going through this loop of really losing their life. There are only two things to be arrested: broken bones, um, you know, even compressed nerve. I mean, a compressed nerve won't cause pain. It's like lying on an arm; you get a dead arm. It doesn't it's not painful. Pain in a nerve is about sensitivity. It's about sensitizing factors, not about compression. So, if you've had a trauma, you know you know what a trauma is. It's like a traumatic injury. You fall out of a building. You fall off the ladder. That's trauma, right? The majority of people we see in clinical practice don't have trauma. They don't come into us broken bones. They go to ED for that. And ironically, you know, a huge number of people go to ED with non-trauma pain. And they get treated like it's a trauma. So because we believe pain is linked to damage, we start treating people with non-trauma pain like they're injured, and we look for the injury. And you go, well, there was no injury. So the majority of what we see in clinical practice is not about injury. It's about minor biomechanical events that cause these catastrophic responses, and that's not about tissue injury. So, you know, think of – I'll give you an example of a young woman I've seen who's. uh, presented to me highly disabled with pain around her pelvic pubic symphysis area. And she developed a pain uh, a week before her delivery of a child, second child. And she said, I don't remember anything I did. The only thing I can think is, you know, I got, uh, the, the, um, you know, I was in, in a car park and I had to get across the seats. The back seat to get to my kid who was crying but it was nothing you know like and then she's you know so what happens she gets scanned and investigated oh well you know it's just leading up to your delivery you've got an unstable pelvis you have to be careful with it and so three months after a pregnancy this lady is not exercising and she manages her mental health through exercise right she's been told not to exercise she's completely deconditioned she's terrified of moving she's guarding her adductors because she thinks if she abducts her hips she's going to the power is going to fall apart now taking through a history i'm going there's no injury we're treating this like the system's damaged right that makes no sense and even if it was damaged you wouldn't be telling someone to rest three months later that is crazy so when i said to her like so tell me what was going on for you like What's the context? Because actually, if you look at context, it starts making sense. So tell me about the context here. So the context is, yeah, so I've got one kid. I've been exercising right up until, you know, whatever, because I'm trying to control my weight uh, and I'm trying to control my mental health. Um, I've been working right up until the end. My sleep was disrupted. I'm under heaps of pressure because we're renovating the house. Now that makes sense. So what do you got? Someone who's under heaps of pressure, they're under stress, they're not sleeping, they're under this pressure of, you know, trying to manage everything before the next kid comes. And then there's this minor blip and a massive pain event. And that's surrounded by this whole belief that pelvis has become unstable and that's the cause of your pain at end that point of pregnancy that was reinforced by all the health providers that saw her and then she's in trouble three months later and really in trouble, terrified. So the journey I take them through is say, hey, this is not about, there's no evidence that the degree of laxity is linked to pain. No evidence for it. Yeah, of course ligaments get lax because that's preparation for childbirth. It's a normal phenomena. The degree of laxity is not related to the degree of pain that you get. Okay, so let's, Just take that one off the table. So what's going through your head? So what's the picture you have of your pelvis? My picture is this is an unstable structure that's going to fall apart on me. Well, do you have any idea how strong pelvises are? They are extraordinarily tough, strong. They take, you know, a, a big bashing. So let's just get you to relax your body. Let's get you moving again. Let's get at you. So what do you want to do? You want to run again, right? Let's form a pathway to get you back to running. Do you think I can run? Of course you can run, but just not today. So what are we going to do? We're going to set a plan. We're going to get you moving. We're going to teach you to relax and start getting you to trust the things that you can't do. So what does she do when she gets out of a chair? She braces herself before she knows co contracts. So let's get you to breathe into that. Let's stop you pulling your legs together when you're. You know, you're, you know, when you're rolling in bed and get you to actually relax and open your hips up and start to actually feel like you can trust your body and straight away, this whole schema that she's built up around, this is a vulnerable damaged structure i got to protect just starts falling away. And so. What we use is what a lot of behavioral learning, what we call behavioral experiments, is say you think your system's damaged, right? You think protecting you is good. Let's what look at what happens when you relax and move. It's like, oh, that feels better. What does that tell you? Protecting doesn't help. If relaxing and loading it more feels better, then what is that? How does that fit with your theory that your system's unstable and it's vulnerable? If I can fatigue the hell out of your body by getting you to work and you feel better, that Disconfirms your belief your system's vulnerable and damaged and needs to be protected. So we use a lot of behavioral learning. And that's where I think is physio to it. It's such an advantage that we can use the body to disconfirm the perception of threat in the body. What's the evidence around muscle strain? We know that how much pain you feel, how disabled you are, is not predicted by the level of damage on an MRI scan. Same story for you name it for discs or I mean the thing is around the pelvis you very rarely find anything um, related to um, pathological change anyway very rarely Um, so you're going to have to look pretty damn hard to find anything and the other problem we've got is if you look at scanning so you just take scanning for example the amount of false positives are huge so like the more the older you get the more stuff you're going to find. MRI scanning just finds more and more stuff that's really not relevant or predicted by pain. So to actually rely on imaging as a means of understanding pain is really flawed because very few things are predicted, are predictive of pain or levels of pain. So even things we know are related to pain, like inflammatory say modic changes around a disc, um, Again, you you look at how much pain the person gets and how disabled they are. They're not predictive. So the levels of pain and the levels of pain you feel and the disability is not predicted by the degree of tissue damage. It's predicted by your beliefs and fear and level of threat around that. Now, if you have someone who has, you know, has a tra- has had a trauma, and to me, it's not a minor event. That's something that you know can cause tissue damage. Well, we know if you cause tissue damage, then what's the time frames? You know, time frames are six to eight weeks. Do you don't rest someone? You very rarely rest them. You know you activate them you set them with a clear understanding this is what's happening this is your trajectory we're going to gradually activate you and get you going the faster we get you going the better you'll be you know you're talking about people who have had pain as i've had you know a young man i'm working with at the moment 10 year history he was told that you know his sacroiliac ligaments were injured And he thinks they're still injured and he feels these pops when he moves. He can feel the pelvis going out of place. He has perceptions of altered, you know, the pelvis is out. And we know that people who have altered body perception are more distressed. So the more distressed you are, the more perception you have that your body's out of kilter. So like at what point 10 years later, or while the tissue's not healed, he's thinking the tissue's not healed and he's still damaged, right? So like, that just shouldn't happen. <laughs> like that just that shouldn't happen. So if you've got a an injury to tissue, then you're looking at a short period of time of tissue healing, where you then activate the person and get them back and going. Right, but not ten years, no way. And there's no evidence to show that the degree that you find of an injury on. Scan predicts the levels of pain and disability. And we, we see this with P- grade three lysthesis with no pain. Person moves completely normally, not painful, and they're not bothered about it. I saw a young girl yesterday, 21 year old, um, and she's being told that she's, she's got past defects, like 5% of the population have this, don't even know about it, right? Not predictive of anything. She's being told because this she may not be, have kids, she can't go back to running, and it is mad. It is completely mad, like at what level is that okay? That is not evidence-based practice, that's scaremongering, it's crazy. I think if you understand pain, you realize that we have a culture around ble- pain beliefs. So pain is something we learn from a really young age. We learn it through parental influence. You know, our our parents' beliefs around pain and behavioral responses to pain predict our responses. So this is so embedded. It's something we hold so deeply personally. And if you're someone who has a fundamental view that pain equals threat and therefore Threat means you shouldn't do stuff, you need to protect it and be careful, and we tell kids about this by telling them to be careful with carrying their school bags, for goodness sake, right? My daughter was telling me, the teacher said, oh God, be careful with your back lifting that school bag. So if we've got a population, and these include healthcare practitioners who are encultured with that view, you have to fundamentally examine your own pain beliefs at a very deep level, to shift how you practice, because that comes back to what we're saying earlier. You can say, yeah, yeah, I get all this neuroscience, but at the very fundamental level, when you're presented with someone who's distressed, you will reinforce avoidance behaviors and protective behaviors with them, if that's your belief. Now, I fundamentally don't believe that pain equals damage. I fundamentally don't believe it. So in in my self, how I respond to being in pain, how I responded to injury in the past um, and present from various events that I've had in my life, I fundamentally don't believe it. So it's easy for me to see someone who's in pain and distressed and to give them a different understanding of pain. Now that doesn't mean that there's never a relationship between pain and injury and tissue injury. But at the end of the day, the natural history is good. So take some of the massive disc prolapse. The natural history is really good for that. It's going to resolve, even though it's really painful. Fractures, really painful, but the natural history is really good. So the first point is fundamentally examine your own pain beliefs. And if you believe that pain equals damage, then you have to really embed yourself in evidence. And that may be really, really hard to do. But also examine how you respond to pain, how you... Um, how your body responds to pain, how you deal with pain. We tell kids not to play on trees. We tell them to wear special backpacks. You know, we give them special pillows and mattresses. And, you know, we give them guidance around how they should sit and bend and tell them that bending with a round back is dangerous. And all of this stuff has zero evidence behind it. So we've actually encultured a belief that backs and pelvis is a vulnerable danger. And, you know, talk about pelvic pain around childbirth and all the threat that goes with that. You know, we've encultured a belief that the human body is vulnerable and susceptible to damage. And if you have pain, it's likely to be that. So at that level, we have a really big problem in society. And the other beliefs that often healthcare practitioners have, and just around kids, You know, we've got data showing that if the child takes time out of school because of pain, they will be the child who will take time out of work because of pain. So those behaviors begin really early and they set a trajectory for later life. My daughter said to the teacher, Actually, carrying the heavy backpack makes my bones stronger because I've buried that into her psyche from a young age. She doesn't do sick time off school and she doesn't do pain related to activity as an injury. So it's like it's a you know, you can build toughness and resilience. And that's what we need to be doing. But mm-hmm. we've got a whole ergonomic industry that's going against that. We've got a educational system that's going against that. We've got advice in schools that's going against that. So when we start to try to change the practice around pain, you've got someone coming in to see you whose fundamental belief is and that may have been in culture through a whole lifetime of them growing up that pain means I'm damaged and I need to protect it and avoid it and rest and you're going to try and turn that on their head that is a really tough process so and that's where you get these backfire effects so they come in saying you know my pelvis is you know uh, my pelvis is damaged and I'm stable and therefore I can't do this and you'll get a feeling pretty quickly as to whether that's a belief. So I often say, what makes you think that? Well, I know it. Okay, how do you know it? I know it because I've been told it. Is that something you've been told there? Is that something you fundamentally feel in your body? No, I can feel, I can feel those bones moving and I can feel the pop. And when it happens, I can feel I'm out of place. So if that's something, then I won't contradict that directly. I'll contradict it indirectly by using manual techniques. So you can, you know, typical example, get up on the bed and put my entire body weight through someone's pelvis and going, how does that feel? And they go, it's fine. And you go, oh, that's interesting because I'm putting 80 kilograms through your pelvis and you're telling me you feel nothing. How does that fit with this idea that your pelvis is fragile and gonna fall apart? So you can ask her a question to make them reflect on their beliefs. So that's a very powerful way of getting self-reflection, which is not you're wrong and I'm right, but actually starting to get them to reflect. So if they think, oh, I need more core, which is the other common one, I've got to protect myself, more core. Tell me how you experience your pain. Oh, well, I'm best if I'm relaxed and had a glass of wine. You go, how does that work against needing more core? They go, well, that sounds like you're better when you're relaxed. But you're saying you need more core. How does that work? So you put these seeds of doubt into the mind of the person and they start realizing actually their schema or understanding of their pain is nothing like their experience at all. It's the opposite. And then you can take them through the process. Actually, let's get you to try this. Just relax into your body. Let it go. Feel what it's like to let go. Get your power through your legs and relax through your back and let go of your pelvic floor before you move. And what does that feel like? So instead of saying this is how it feels, you go, how does that feel for you? It feels different. It feels lighter. I feel less pain with that. So what is that telling you? It's telling you letting go is better than protecting. Now, there's nothing wrong with contracting your muscle, but if you're contracting it as a protective reflex because you think you're going to fall apart, that's not helpful. So there's also a lot of evidence to show that people with incontinence and, and pelvic pain have hyperactive pelvic floor. If you think about it, what's your, stri- what's your response if you're frightened? It'll be to co-contract. What happened? Fear, catastrophizing. So mm-hmm. a lot of the things that we can do are not explicit confrontation of beliefs. They're, they're implicit. They're, they're behavioral questions because part of that if you understand pain part of it is like a schema you know you have this idea you have these behavioral responses the person presents to you with that presentation and you can hit at that system through through the body through their behaviors through their responses through their thoughts through their emotions there are lots of ways in at the system and when your one system's locked you have to be able to look at it from another point in the system that's how i would see that um, uh, but fundamentally pain is real, but it doesn't mean you're damaged. So being empathetic, understanding, nonjudgmental, um, caring, kind, supportive understandings, really important, but but that's different than buying into the beliefs of the person. But, you know, we, if you don't have that relationship, you can't take someone on a journey. If someone's terrified of moving, They, you have to, it's like going rock climbing with someone in Skira Heights. You don't want to go rock climbing with someone who's edgy, who's chaotic, who's not calm. You want to go with someone who you fundamentally trust, who you know is experienced, you know, stays cool under pressure. And that's what we need to train in our therapists. I reckon is being calm and cool under pressure and not buying into the distress but actually being caring and empathetic, but saying, okay, get you to stress. But for me to help you in this place of distress, it's getting you back to doing the stuff you love and building your confidence back in your body, not through the stuff I do, but fundamentally by you learning to do stuff for yourself. And I think that's where I see the role of manual therapy and passive therapies can be a huge hindrance for people because they become dependent on them. and. The worst thing you can do for someone who's lacking self-efficacy, who's frightened, is to become the therapist who takes their pain away, creating dependency. You want to build their confidence in their body up. So you go, hey, you're in control of this. I want you to be the person in charge. I want you to have mastery over this problem. I want you to have the control over managing your thoughts and your responses to pain and your behaviors around pain so that you know that if you're in a situation where you're in trouble, you know what to do. we can really undo people by doing too much stuff to them over treating them i am a manual therapist so i use my hands on every patient i see that doesn't mean i do a treatment on them i see there's a big distinction between hands-on and treatment so hands-on to me is empathy it's reassurance it's facilitation it's feedback it's you know it's it's building confidence. So this idea of hands off to me is just crazy because you care for someone, you put your hand on them. Um, it's a means of, it's an incredibly powerful means of communication. It facilitates calmness, it reduces anxieties. Like why wouldn't you do that? But I think we couch hands on in I'm treating your dysfunction or your pathology or your st- whatever it is, that's the message that goes behind that's it. not helpful. Providing touch is therapeutic. The message behind touch, like a lot of stuff, can be unhelpful. Um, And it's about the message that you give with the touch. And and at the end of the day, you know, I've got myself into a trap with patients who I've seen 15 years ago who come in to see me. And look, if someone's highly functioning they're active, they're engaged in life and they have some, you know, aches and pains and they want to loosen up. I'm okay with that. I don't mind doing that, but they're not the people who are, you know, if you look at who's in trouble in our health system, it is not those people. It's not the 80% of people who are really disabled have done that stuff and it doesn't work. And they're not functioning as live, you know, they're not, they're not functioning, they're, they're, they're disabled. We have to stop doing that stuff. We have to stop passive therapies for those patients. So great memory of um, a meeting I had with a trauma surgeon who was uh, attended a, a workshop where the, a notable physiotherapist was telling them that these pelvises went out of place and he just said, this is ridiculous. He said, we see people who are in motor vehicle accidents Who every bit of their body is smashed, but the sacroiliac joint is intact. It is so strong. So that's the kind of message we've got to give people. That no, I mean there there are really good studies that have looked at um, people with pelvic girdle pain. These bones aren't out of place. So we, you know, of any other joint in the body, the sacroiliac joint has so much mystique attached to it. So much mistake. Now, why is the pelvis such an important area? Because, you know, it's, you know, you hold a life in that space. You know, this is a place that, that is to be protected, to be cared for, to be nurtured. You know, we see women who have been abused, women who have been, you know, that becomes a place of threat. So pain in that region is pre primed to be threatening. If you have been traumatized, it's a place that we've kind of described as being vulnerable. We've got to stop it. It's just so unhelpful. So fundamentally, if the person is frightened of a perceived threat, the body's response is to protect. How do you do that? You do it through your motor system. So, you know, you don't see people chilling out, relaxing if they're threatened. Hmm. They don't do that. So actually making them more tense is just feeding what we call safety behaviors. So it's a safety behavior to protect yourself you're threatened. Doing more just reinforces that. So Anne Mannion um, published a paper looking at um, mediators at change for people who did specific stabilizing exercises. And it's a reduction in catastrophizing. It's got nothing to do with Mm -hmm. a change in the muscle. Yeah. So if you're a confident therapist who says, "Look, no worries, got it sorted. This is what you do. Let's get you working these muscles. Let's build your confidence and get you back living again," and if they reduce their catastrophizing, then that's a mediator. It's not the change in the muscle. It's yeah. the it'll be the therapeutic journey of getting that person back to living again. Now, the the the, the downside of the kind of reinforcing more co-contraction is it reinforces the belief that all your pelvis unstable so you need more of that so actually feeds into that threat schema that's the downside of it it also creates more hypervigilance. where my view is with the human body you know the human body is best when it's doing fun things and the focus is away from the body so a lot of therapies place the focus attention to the body not away from the body but actually having fun is not focus on the body yeah it's away yeah. from the body doing stuff that you love that's the end point in the therapeutic journey and often we mess that up by creating more hypervigilance and reinforcing these kind of threatening schemas around you know well you've got to do this because you need your glute to hold your pelvis here and watch your pelvic floor and you know you hear the language of these patients they're so just saying this all the time Oh yeah, yeah, i can feel my pelvic floor on the right sides a little bit you know you know, he's going, wow, that's way too much information. I have never given my pelvic floor that much attention. Don't think it's normal. Well, that whole belief around core is hugely problematic. And I, I think why it's really gained so much traction is it tips into other popular beliefs around body image. You know, like we ha- we as- aspire to have body, you know, we see lots of young girls who are pulling their guts in because they don't like their body shape because of this whole Body scheme or body dysmorphic view of what's beautiful, right? And so it kind of taps into that, that, you know, you got to have a strong cause that makes it strong. And it's like, well, that doesn't even make sense. I mean, if if you're walking around pulling your guts in all the time is not normal, you can't use your diaphragm. You create, you know, talk about increased tension in your pelvic floor. you All you're doing is generating increased intra abdominal pressure. Now, that's okay if you're doing a heavy lift, but not for walking around. We just published a paper um, that came out a week ago looking at lifting. So people who lift 15 kilograms don't activate their transverse abdominal wall any more than what they do in standing. Lifting is about your legs and back muscles, not about your abdominal wall. But what do we teach people to do? We tell them to brace their stomach when they bend. That's not normal. It's not normal. And that whole health industry has absolutely embedded itself in that belief. Then it's like yeah, a strong core unloads your back. Crap, it loads your back. You know, we kind of use the analogy of the clenched fist. So you clench your fists, you load your wrists, right? Makes it stiff. If you clench your core, you co-contract your muscles around your back and abdominal wall, generate intra abdominal pressure, that's gonna create load. Now there's nothing danger with loading, but if you do, but if you load with the belief that you're gonna protect this vulnerable structure, that becomes part of that negative schema around, I'm my back is vulnerable and, well, my pelvis is vulnerable and it's threatened. Then it becomes unhelpful. I have a big distinction between being fit, healthy, strong, and being tense, protected, guarded, vulnerable. They're kind of different thoughts. Or if you look at people in pain, what are, what are the things that, um, that separate them from people without pain is they're guarded, they're stiff, they're slower, they're less variable, they're more co-contracted. Why? Because they're protecting themselves and they're frightened. You know, women post-pregnancy become fit, healthy, active, strong. That's a great message. That's a great message you know, as long as it's done in a sensible way and they're not bashing themselves up because you do get that group as well. But, um, you know, being fit, healthy, strong, flexible, variable, you know, what's healthy movement, variability in movement, movement options, that's healthy. What's unhealthy is guarded, protective, avoidant, you know, feared, they all kind of fit together. Because I'm a researcher as well as a clinician, we kind of look at what are the fundamental things that underpin change when people are in trouble. And I think it's a really good place to come from, but like what, what is it? What is it that leaves people trapped and what is it to get them out of trouble? And the, fundamentally about what is your belief around your pain? What's your understanding of it? What strategies do you have to control that to get back to the things you love? that, that it's, it's that simple. I reckon <laughs> Now, how you go about taking them there, I really don't care, as long as you get there. So the question is, if you're at a point where you're going, pain? What pain? Um, Pain, yeah. Like, I mean, this is the other thing I think we've encultured is this idea that we have to be a pain-free society. It's like, hello, I feel pain in my body every day. Does it bother me? No. Do I pay attention to it? No. Does it stop me doing the things I love in life? No. Is it a problem for me? No. This idea that you know any little pain shouldn't be there, we kind of created this belief that pain is abnormal. Pain is just part of life. Pain is normal. You know, mm-hmm. where it's not helpful is when it is threatening, when it disrupts your ability to do the things you love, when it takes away your confidence to, to do those things. That's when it's a problem. So I think fundamentally understanding that journey is the most important thing. So whatever you do with a patient you work with, preface it by understanding three things. One is what's the message I'm giving? What strategies am I empowering this person with to get back to the things that they, that they love? And that could be anything. I say to people, they, oh, should I run? If you love running, you should run. Did, should I go to Pilates? Well, do you want to do Pilates? Do you enjoy that? So is Pilates bad for me? No, it's Pilates. Like it's the message you give with the Pilates that could be unhelpful or helpful. But if you love Pilates, do Pilates. If you love yoga, do yoga. If you love to dance, do dance. If you love to ride a bike, and then ride a bike. I have people go, oh, I've got a disc bowl, just shouldn't ride a bike. Like where did that come from? You know, oh, I've had a disc prolapse. I saw a guy yesterday, 10 years ago, he had a discectomy. He says at the age of 50, I'm old. And I said, what? what's your picture of your back? He's got, it's like a spiky thing in the back and it's crumbling. And I haven't run. I'd love to play football again and run, but I haven't run because I'm frightened it's going to prolapse again. Like I said, do you understand that runners have stronger discs than non-runners? They're stronger. That the human body gets stronger with use and resilience and and load. It's what it loves. And you're depriving it of the very thing that's going to make your body healthy. And for him, he's going, are you serious? Like that was just like, completely contradictory what he's thinking so if if we understand that what it takes to get someone back to living again we've got to take people on that journey that's the most important thing so changing language changing understanding giving them strategies that are active engaging fun there is a youtube clip on pelvic pain as well yes. i forgot to mention that and that's um that kind of talks through that Evidence And if, if you look at the comments on, on the YouTube under it, I've taken a fair old bashing and yes. actually I've given one of the comments, I've actually listed a whole series of articles that completely contradicts the belief. So number one, there is no, there there is evidence that during pregnancy ligaments get lax, right? But there is no evidence that the degree of laxity is a predictor of pain. There is evidence that during pregnancy that you become more sensitive around the pelvis. That's a normal thing. And that's probably protective, that it's like you set up an alarm system around an area that you want to protect. If you stress that individual then you, the sensitivity becomes greater. So that's probably evolutionary, right? Because if you're a stressed individual, then there's a threat to that life. Hmm. So if you start creating a stressed organism that is carrying a life, then you're more susceptible to pain. So we look at the things that predict pelvic girdle pain, but things like depressed moves, sleep, um, lack of sleep, negative beliefs, um, um uh you know stress like life stress factors that increases your risk of developing pain during pregnancy not the degree of laxity um so there are really important things to be clear on if you've had a history of pain in the back you're more likely to so you've been pre-primed if you've had a history of a pelvic um period pain you've you got an increased risk of pain so you've got this pre-priming story that occurs and then this kind of contextual stuff that occurs now, if you develop pain, and look, let's face it, the majority of women will develop some form of pain around their back and pelvis, late stage pregnancy, and that is normal. What is not normal is to become profoundly disabled by pain. The things that predict disability are around your beliefs. If you believe that you will become disabled, that's a really strong predictor that you will. Um, and so the other things that we have to really question now the tests of instability well the tests of mobility are not valid they're not re- and not reliable so you and I can't agree no one can agree on it so we shouldn't be teaching stuff that no one can agree on that has very limited validity that's number 1 number 2 tests like the positive active straight leg raise is the test of lifting your leg and it's the heaviness of the leg that is not that is not a predictor of the pelvis being unstable that's a predictor of your ability to lift a leg it's no different than someone with shoulder pain lifting their arm and it feels heavy so i think we've got to demystify that the tests of provocation you know Laslett's tests are tests that test sensitivity of tissue um and um, um there's a lovely study that actually showed that if you put saline and people with no pain into the posterior sacroiliac joint ligament it replicates all the provocation tests and the tests of actostratic rays. So it's really a, a test of tissue sensitivity, not test of instability. So if we understand that there are things you can measure, like how sensitive your structures are, that's a measure of sensitivity, not structural integrity. And I think we need to really carefully separate that out, that you can have really sensitive structures around your pelvis, but it doesn't mean they're damaged and it doesn't mean they're unstable. It, it just means they're sensitive. Why they're sensitive is influenced by a whole bunch of things around your beliefs, your emotional status, your you know your social setting, your levels of sleep, prior history of pain, probably genetic factors that influence how sensitive your system is at that point in time. Yeah, the other clash I think is you know it's all psychosocial. It's not bio. I mean, you cannot separate. Biology is driven by multiple factors so you know we're not in the case of just being psychologists that's very not that is so not our space if you take a, a human being and you deprive them of sleep and put them under heaps of stress and you influence their levels of mood and anxiety you feel stuff in your body it affects your levels of pain thresholds your tissue sensitivity and your pain system fluctuates all the time bounces in and out of pain all the time for some people it gets bounced into pain and gets stuck And the other ones we try and bounce out. (laughs) Pete Sullivan PT is my Twitter tag. Yeah. Um, And look, I tweet a lot of other people's work. If I see something I value, I'll tweet it. So um, uh, the PayNED website, I said, is the other place we push out info. info. But, um, you know, the more people kind of creating a narrative around this, It's good, I mean we need cultural shift basically because we've got an industry that is feeding into the misery of human beings out there.